We're picking back up. This is, I think, week three where we transitioned into this 2020 vision. And basically where we're at and, and going back to the sign, I talked about it, that sign, your sign got a little bit of attention. I have received numerous messages about this sign. And, and sunlight stopped out there and taking pictures. I mean, things come down here morning. I mean, I can't tell you how many messages I've gotten. It says, okay, what does it say? Yeah, yeah. And to be honest with you, I'm loving it because it's got people thinking. And as I talked about it last week, you know, the initial reaction I've had a number of people who say, I feel bad because my first reaction is God is nowhere. What do you see? <laughs> All right. But the more you look at it, the more you think about it. And again, as I mentioned last week, we as Christians, when we walk into the room, people look at us with that exact phrase on us. I mean, when they see us, we're just one big jumble mess. Do they see God is now here or God is nowhere? And that's the question, you know, and that's what we're going to attempt to continue answering and what we're continuing to look at here. And as I do that, what we're doing is we're taking scripture that we uh, misuse, so to speak. And today is going to be a good one. And this one's going to actually, I'm a little nervous about this one because I, I don't think the meaning that we apply to it is wrong. But I think that contextually speaking, what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to do in this study is that we open up the Word of God and contextually read it for the time but for us and not apply our own meaning to it. So a few weeks ago, we started this whole thing, even before we started this series with Second Chronicles 7.14, talking about the fact that we leave parts of that verse out. Then the week after that, was Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Does not mean that God's going to give you the fancy car and the fancy house you want. It means that he will give you the actual desires that your heart has at that point when you delight yourself in him. When you commit your ways to him, he lays the desires in your heart for where they can go. Last week, we talked about Psalm, or Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, and talked about that contextually speaking, it's not about prosperity so much as it's about the fact that God is promising a generation that they will be delivered after captivity. And as we look at that and we start to break that down, there's a lot deeper meaning to it for us as Christians. So that brings us to this week, Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. And I'm going to read the verse, the first simple verse and then we're going to go back and look at a lot of this but Matthew 18 20 says this for where two or three are gathered together in my name I am there in the midst of them seems simple enough and no I'm not saying that the interpretation that we as Christians have as if two or three are here that God is in the midst is wrong I want to broaden our perspective of what is taking place here, and I want to look at it. How many of you remember where you were when a tragedy happened? Um, Big one. Let's say September 11th. I think I've mentioned this before. We know where we were, except for you. You don't know where you were. But the rest of us know where we were on September 11th, 2001. You were not born yet, in case you're wondering. Um, <laughs> uh, but... 
when we look at that day, or let me take it back further to dates that I don't remember necessarily, but that some of you might, President Kennedy being shot, or the Challenger exploding. I remember that one very well, and I was six years old. So, I mean, I can think of something in each generation probably that we could remember. Um, I mean, even more recently, there's probably events that trigger in people's minds of, I will never forget where I was when that happened. I will never forget where I was when this circumstance or that circumstance happened. I'll never forget when these things took place. And what we look at here is simply this. The more positive side of this are also certain memories about maybe the first high school dance or getting your driver's license. That was pretty fresh, right? Uh, But we remember those things. You remember your first date with who became your spouse. You remember everything about those moments. You remember your wedding day. You remember the birth of a child. You remember those positive moments. And what we look at here, you know, sometimes life's memories are made of simple things. And I read a story about a man who was talking about his son and the son talking about some different things that he wanted to see happen. And he asked the question to the dad. He said, dad, where is God? And God said, he's everywhere. Now, before I get into all this, I just want to explain to you this is a story but i'm gonna go into the scripture with it as well but the dad replies with god is everywhere and the son says is he in the trees and he says yes he's in the trees is he in this is he in that he eventually gets to is he in this clouds and the dad says yes he's in the clouds and the son replies and says i want to see him come out of the clouds and the dad said it stopped him in his tracks for a moment because the reality is he said all he could look at his son and say at that moment was me too son me too Because it opened his eyes to the reality of what will take place. A moment that we will obviously never forget because that's the beginning of the rest of our lives at that moment. When he comes out of the clouds, we're going to experience heaven. You know, and that's the thing that we look at. But what I see in this and what reminds me of, we at young ages, I I think about my nephew and the questions and the statements that he makes at six years old. And I'm thinking there has to be some kind of supernatural power in this because there's no way he's heard somebody say that. I mean, just randomly popping out with statements and questions like, where is God? Who is God? Who created God? I mean, if you want to leave it to kids, they're going to ask questions. They're going to ask things that they don't understand. And kids are a lot more apt and open to asking those questions than adults anymore. Because as adults, we want to start trying to put our own understanding on it and that's where we get to where we are today with the scripture because we want to put our own understanding our own twist our own development process in it i'm sorry i'm not trying to leave you out back here no, so. I'm good. okay uh, <laughs> but what i want us to understand and look at this is we have those questions but we need to contextually look at the scripture that's around the verses i mean it may be that the verse doesn't fully mean, as I mentioned at the end of last week, John 3.16 is a great verse for salvation, but it's incomplete by itself. Because if you don't have 3.16 and 17, you don't understand why Christ came. You just know he came. But if we leave it out, then we forget the fact that he came to save the world and not condemn it. But if you don't look back to verse 14 and 15, 
then you don't understand why Christ even went to the cross. Because what God is, or what it's saying in for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son is not saying that God, like a valley girl, so loved the world. I so loved it. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that God loved the world in this way. In this way, God loved the world. So what is in this way referring to? Well, if you go back to 14, it says that just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And in that regard, then Jesus became that sacrifice that as the serpent, and and if we know that story, it was a serpent that was lifted up that if somebody got a snake bite, they could look upon the serpent and they would be healed. And so Jesus, in the same way, was lifted up. So that we could look upon him and be healed of our sin. And be healed of the, the snake bite, so to speak, of sin. Because that's all it is. It's the serpent's bite. He started this thing back in Genesis, if we really want to get technical about it. Go back and see what happened with Eve. The serpent had a lot to do with it. I mean, really, there's a lot of correlations here. But what we see here is that God is omnipresent. God is there. And I want to take this back to Psalm 139 for a moment, where it says in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, it says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So David writing here in Psalm 139, and and we've talked about Psalm 139 a lot. I mean, Psalm 139 continues to get referenced over a number of different things, anywhere from the understanding fact in verses 5 and 6 to verse 14, where it says, For I was fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Attitude. I mean, you hear the arguments in it that Psalm 139 is a beautiful song. And it's a beautiful song written to God. But here's the thing that we look at today is when we look at these verses, where can I go from your spirit? Well, that kind of defeats what we as Christians say about this verse today. Where two or three are gathered, I am in the midst is what God says. Well, that's great. But does that mean that we only have to have two or three gathered? So you see where we're going with this today and where we're going to end up on this. But what I want us to understand is that David believed that God was everywhere at all times. David believed that God was there and we couldn't escape the presence of God. He couldn't. David said he couldn't escape God anywhere. And we can't escape God. He's always in the presence of us. Now, whether we're actually listening to what he's saying or whether we're listening to what's going on, but God is always in the presence because God is everywhere. So therefore, saying where two or three are gathered, how accurate is that statement? As we look at that and we start to break it down, what I want to continue going through is saying this, is that perhaps we need to look at this in this way. It's not the only way the Bible speaks of God's presence. Perhaps actually the most dramatic way that the Bible speaks about it is with Jesus in the miracle uh, known as in the, uh, let's see, the incarnation, which is the moment God entered into human history and took on human flesh, which we can really get into that whole description. I'm not really looking at any kind of conversation about that. I mean, honestly, we know what happened with Christ, but God's always been present. So there's not really to say that that's the moment that God entered human history. 
Because God entered human history the day that God said, let us make man in our own image. And then he created man. So God has always been a part of history. He's always been a part. Now, the fact that Christ walked on the earth. But you see, God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. So there's that. I mean, it's not the first time God was on this earth, is what I'm saying. And Christ was 100% man and 100% God. He was born of a virgin. We know all the story of Christmas. We know the things that happen in this process. So what we see here is that in a different way, we know that the Spirit of God, Christ, promised a helper. That helper came and it resides within us. Those of us who accept Christ as our Savior, who accept that call and allow that to happen, He becomes resident within us. Through the Holy Spirit. So we see that he's here. He's not just some passing thing. He's not just some thing that we we have to. I mean, I, if I want to experience the presence of God, I don't have to call Blake and call Jordan and say, hey, I need you guys to meet me at the church because I, I just I need to be in the presence of God. But I need you two to be there with me. Is that what it means that where two or three are gathered? And that's the thing that we need to understand because contextually speaking, we miss points of what scripture mean. This is going to be a tough <laughs> message and I'm going to do the best I can to get the point across as quickly as possible. But what we need to understand, it's fair to say that God indeed does manifest his presence in ways that are knowable, ways that are discernible, ways that we can understand what is taking place. We know that God does do that. And God does give us that hope and that opportunity in him. But what we also recognize is that the most often the way that we read of God's presence in the Bible, it's accompanied with the idea that wherever he is, there's a blessing. So if we recognize that where he is, there's a blessing, then what we can understand is that we get to this verse for where two or three people are gathered. Now, there is the statement of in my name. And then there's also, there I am in the midst. There's a, a little bit of a caveat here. Again, that's what we're looking at in these scripture that we're looking at here. There's always a caveat. There's something that we're leaving out, something that we're missing, something that we're not fully understanding the meaning of. So let's go back a couple verses. Let's go back to verse 15. It says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So what we're seeing here is the context of this verse before it happens. The context of this verse here comes out of something that is more of a conflictual and troublesome situation than just if two or three are gathered in worship, there he is in the midst. Does that mean that worship is wrong? No. What it means is, is that by looking at this, what we're seeing here is there is a theme that we are missing if we just take that verse as standalone. If we just take that verse as a standalone verse where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst. That's great, but there's the, in his name, there's the promise of him being in the midst because we're gathered in his name. And if we leave those things out, now, technically speaking, 
if we look at it, we can rest assured that spiritually God is there. What we can see in this, however, is that he is telling us this. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear even the church, then let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. Which that doesn't mean push the tax collectors aside. That just means in that time, that's the way they were viewed because tax collectors were dishonest. So they pretty much rid themselves of that. What I'm saying is that in the church today, there are some, as Jonathan shared with us in the sermon at one time, that we need to give the gift of goodbye to. That doesn't mean we give up on them. It doesn't mean that we give them the gift of give up. We just don't allow them to be a part of what the church is doing for the simple fact that they are only here to stir dissension. And if we find that there are people that are that way within the church today, then what we can understand is that these are the people that we are now talking about because it says where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst. Okay, that reference back to where it says to take two or three witnesses. Witnesses, meaning they have seen the same thing. Two or three that have the same viewpoint in the name of Christ that are in tune with the Spirit, that are seeing the same dissension, those need to be taken. Well, how do I know that this is not just a verse that's a transitional verse? Well, the next section is about the unforgiving servant. You can't tell me that between these verses that we're not trying to simply sit here and say something. These verses have more to contextually do with the circumstances rather than just saying, well, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. Where two or three are gathered, I'm already there. That doesn't make sense to me when we look at this, but we're talking about discipline. We're talking about the church itself as a whole. And the themes that are present in this context are forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation with a brother or sister who has sinned or who has gone astray. And then Jesus lists several practical steps that we must take to reconcile a broken relationship. A relationship that is breached or shattered because of sin. The first is the private step, to go to them alone and say, I have a problem. This is what's happened. You are wrong. It doesn't say go to Facebook. It doesn't say go to Twitter. It doesn't say take it to Snapchat for your story. It says go to them alone and talk to them alone. It doesn't say for me to go to Blake and say, did you hear about Charlie? Which... Those are things that we don't need to be doing. Now, if I go to Charlie and Charlie has a problem and I, and I share it with Charlie and Charlie doesn't listen, then I can go to Blake and say, have you seen this? And then I can go to Lamar when, you know, or Jordan or Pat and say, have you seen this? Well, now I have two or three that have seen the same thing. Then we can go back to Charlie and say, look, I'm not the only one noticing this. But when those two or three reach a conclusion... It needs to be forgotten and moved on. It doesn't need to be something that we then go back onto and bring back up. See, that's the problem with the way that things have worked in the church today. Too many times we've gotten wrapped up in making sure that everybody else knows that there's a problem within the church when the reality of it is is that it could have easily been handled. If I have a problem with someone and I go speak to that one alone, And say, hey, here's what I'm seeing. This doesn't line up with scripture. And they look at me and go, well, this is where I'm at and why I'm doing it. Nine times out of ten, there's your solution. 
because they're now recognizing what they are doing. And they have explained why they were doing what they were doing. And then those two can move past that point. Now, if the person that is in the wrong doesn't listen, then you take witnesses. But again, you don't take the church. Only after the witnesses have gone and the person still refuses to change. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about the repentance thing this morning. You know, we can come up to the altar and sure, that's between you and God. If you repent at the altar and you handle that situation there, it's not for me unless I'm seeing fruit that is not of someone who is saved. And then I need to go to you and say, hey, look, you're not exactly doing the right thing here. This is not how your life should be lived. If you are claiming to be this, you can't be that. And then if they're not listening, then two or three others that have seen it but are in the same mind in his name can go to that person. But it needs to be, I mean, we need to pray for discernment in that situation. But then Jesus prescribes an initial step of personal and private conversation between Christians. And then he continues on to keep it as quiet and as private as possible. Because once we go through those situations, leave it there. It doesn't mean you go to Charlie and you go with two or three. And then of those two or three, then two of them go and start telling everyone else about, well, this is what's been taking place. It means that if the issue is resolved, it's resolved. So as we look at that and we move forward from that, there are many purposes to take two or three. There are many purposes for us to do that. It adds a level of seriousness. It adds a level of this opportunity of them to handle it appropriately because then they can see that, you know, if there's two witnesses there, then whatever happens between me and Charlie... Somebody else is going to see it. So they will know whether I handled something wrong or Charlie handled something wrong. You know, they'll also see the situation and they can even call out the person that's bringing the initial thing. But all of this leads back to that last verse. Jesus is teaching that unrepentant sin is a serious matter. He's teaching that unrepentant sin among Christians is a difficult thing. Paul actually later warns the church at Corinth to handle sin quickly and expediently, lest a little yeast work through the whole batch of dough. If sin is not handled in the proper way, if sin is not handled in the right way, then sin can become like yeast and it can cause something to grow. And that is why the church sometimes does need to give the gift of goodbye to somebody who continues to refuse to be a part of the church. Now, what that means, though, is if we tell them, hey, look, if you're going to continue doing this, you, you need to kind of step out. You need to step out of the role that you're playing. You need to step out of the situation you're in. And then what you need to do also, though, is continue to pray for them. It's not saying for you to just completely cut them off because as Christians is our only, I mean, is it not our goal to pray for others, to see others come to know the same joy and hope that we have through Christ? So therefore, if we give them the gift of goodbye and we cut them off, which is what the church is really good at doing today, we're really good at cutting ties with one another and then just like pushing everybody to the wayside and telling them they're no longer welcome in our home, they're no longer welcome in our church, they're no longer welcome anywhere. We see them in public, we turn around the other way because we just can't stand the side of them. The reality of it is, I'm, I'm guilty. I do, it, I do it a lot more than I should. And I recognize it. 
And after this week, I'm really recognizing it. And I've had some breakdown moments where I'm recognizing that maybe I'm not the one who's doing the things the right way sometimes. And thank God he deals with us in those circumstances. But what we see happen here and what we can see is that if sin goes unchecked, if sin goes ignored, if sin becomes devastating, it can become so devastating to the point where things can grow out of hand and become a problem. And that's where we see churches split. That's where we see things happen within the church that are completely ungodly. And we know they're ungodly, but there's nothing we can do to stop it once it's reached that point. Until everything takes its own course. But if we can stop it early, if we can stop it before it becomes a problem, unrepentant sin is a serious matter for the one who is refusing to acknowledge it just as much as our unrepentant sin is for us. See, it ultimately comes down to the unrepentant sin in each of our own lives. If I'm not repenting for the sins that are in my life, then there's nothing I can do to bring something to others' attention. How do I know this? Well, Jesus also, in chapter 7, I believe, no. Hold on. I have it here. I forget that. I'll just go to it. I don't know the reference right off the top of my head. I had it written down, but I can't find it in my notes. But Jesus earlier talks about the plank and the splinter. We know the story. We know what it means. But if I'm calling Blake out on something that is minor, something small, this is what happens in the world today. This is what we see in politics. It's what we see in the world around us is that nobody feels comfortable in their own sin. I might be so uncomfortable in my sin that I'm going to call Blake out on the tiniest of sins because that pulls the direction, that pulls everybody's attention to Blake. And I'm sitting back going, okay, I'm good. I got this. I'm, I'm back. I'm out of the way. And the reality of it is, is that my sin in my life is a huge plank to me. Now in Blake's life, Blake's sin's probably a plank to him, but he might be looking to pull out the sins of Jordan so that it deflects even more. But really, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know what the sin looks like between you and God. But what I do know is that if the sin is between you and God, it's as big as a plank because any dividing factor can keep you from experiencing His presence. And when you look at it that way, and when you start to understand it, and when you start to really grasp it, when you start to take it in, what you realize is that that plank that's in your eye is keeping you from seeing clearly anything else. It's keeping you from seeing clearly the troubles that are being faced. And the problem is, is that as we look at this and we start to go through it, what, what is ideal doesn't become reality. What would be an ideal situation is everybody's sins are forgiven. Everybody is repentant. Everybody moves forward and we're all happy and we have lunch or whatever. I don't know. But the reality of it is, is that if I refuse to repent of my sin, I'm doing myself a disservice more than anybody else. My life only can serve to be an example if it's lived in the proper way. Now, we can get into the whole thing, and we're going to talk about this next week. So I don't want to get too much into this. But there is the verse that judge not lest ye be judged. And we're going to go there next week, and it's going to build off of this. But I want to make sure that you understand when we get there, you need to understand a few things. And we'll talk a little more about the... I think that's why I'm thinking ahead is the plank and the splinters next week. But um, but what we're looking at here is that basically we have the, no choice but to recognize what's happening here. 
we have no choice but to recognize that our sin can cause a division between us and someone else solely based on God's spirit and how it works in the situation. So as we look at this and as we think about this, the one thing that we need to understand, it says, again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. That's verse 19. If anything you agree on is asked for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. And Jesus is saying whenever the church is pursuing and is involved, in the circumstance, then together as a whole in the spirit of his name, in his spirit, allowing the guidance of the Holy Spirit, if we ask for things, it will be done. It's not saying that Pat goes and finds a selfish reason that Blake needs to do something or Pat goes and finds a selfish reason that Sharon needs to do something. And so then she starts praying and she gets somebody else to pray in on it. So Jordan, Blake really needs to do this, so you need to pray this specific prayer. That is not how God works. I've had people ask me to pray specifically for things, and I have looked at them and said, really? I mean, like specifics down to so-and-so needs to see something this way. And I'm going, no, you need to see something this way, because that is not how God works. God is not going to answer a specific prayer that's prayed in selfishness and without his spirit guidance. But if we want to really break it down, maybe it starts with us. Just because Blake has something that might be a problem to me doesn't mean that what Blake's doing isn't right in the eyes of God. It means I see it as a sin because my life's not right. It means that I see it through this clouded glass of a plank I mean, there's, there's like this view of Blake and then there's a plank here. So really all I can see is his left arm. And the reality of it is, is that, how's that? That's his right arm, by the way. Um, it was, yeah, my left, you're right. Uh, but what we see in this is that we're starting to see clouded views of the world around us. We're starting to see clouded views of the church around us. And then when we see it all come down to is that within the church today, what we find is that God is doing something amazing and can do something amazing if we just allow him to do it. But the reality is selfishness has to be a second nature. Or not a second nature. It needs to be no nature at all, actually. I don't know why I said second. It needs to be secondary to everything else. Because selfishness is what ruins the body. So when we look at what's happening here and it says where two or three are gathered together in my name, it doesn't necessarily speak to the fact that where two or three are gathered, that is the moment that he's with them. But unfortunately in the church today, that's kind of what we've seen to have make it. We seem to have understood it that way. And that's the only way we look at that scripture. But the reality is Jesus himself talked about prayer closets, talked about going and getting alone with God. He didn't talk about going and praying on the street corners like the Pharisees other than to say it was wrong. If I'm praying in a group of people and that's the only time I'm seeking God, there's a problem. But if I'm out here and I'm looking to you to pray with me for a circumstance or a situation, then we come together two or three and pray for that. If two or three people ask in my name and are together in agreement, 
my father will answer is what Jesus is saying here. And then he's saying, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst. In other words, remember what he says about the fact that he's at the right hand of God and he's there on our behalf and that when it comes down to the end days, he's there and he can intervene for us. And as we've talked about Revelation, what we've recognized is that the prayers of the saints make it to the throne of God as sweet-smelling incense, with the incense even, that we see in chapter 8. So as we look at it today, what we need to understand, what we need to really take hold of in this, as we move forward with 2020 vision, as we look forward 14 months into 2020 of where we can be as a church, what we need to understand today is that where two or three are in agreement, there he is in the midst. But that agreement needs to be within the Spirit and the leading and guiding of the Spirit within our hearts. It doesn't need to be in the leading of a selfish mind or a contrite spirit or in the leading of, well, let's get two or three people together and start trying to push the rest of these people out of the way so that we can make this work. Because it's not about our selfish desires. The last time that happened, two were, two were in agreement and took it to Adam. That's three. And then they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Because the serpent convinced Eve to agree with him. Who then went to Adam. And Adam didn't even really ask questions. He just said, oh, fruit from, okay, cool. Took a bite. At least that's the way the story reads. Now, I don't know. Adam and Eve may have had a 30-minute conversation in which ended with, okay, if it will get you to shut up, I will take a bite. But I mean, I've never been married, so that might be a reason why too. So, <laughs> but you see what I'm going with that. You see what I'm saying is that the serpent led Eve to believe that there was power in whatever she was doing. He took it to Adam and Adam lost control of his house and he took a bite as well. Are we losing control of our house today? Are we losing control of where we are because our two or three in agreement aren't exactly the agreement that God wants it to be. It doesn't matter if it's an agreement. The question is, is it in his name? And by in his name, it doesn't necessarily mean in his name. It means in his spirit. Is he in control of you? Is he leading you? Is he guiding that moment? Is he the one leading us to that agreement? See, real agreement happens the Spirit's going to lead me. The Spirit will lead Blake. The Spirit will lead Charlie. And we'll come together and say, hey, I kind of had this on my mind. And he says, well, that's what the Spirit's been saying to me too. You see, it doesn't necessarily even have to come from our selfish desires. If we're truly seeking God, He will guide us to that moment. He will guide us to that situation. And reconciliation will happen between us and someone else just solely based on the fact that we can go to them and say, hey, this is wrong, this is bothersome, this is killing me. I need you to understand the sin that you were in is wrong. But there's forgiveness. There's, there's an opportunity. All you need to do is be repentant. You need to come to the altar and do what the Spirit is leading you to do because the Spirit's been calling and there's an answer. But there's, I mean, we established this many times over over the last two, three years. And that simply is this. Not one of us is able to do it on our own. Not one of us is capable of doing it on our own. But the love with which we show to one another is something that we can actually see God's spirit at work. And we can see God at work in the lives of someone else. I can't do it by myself. 
But with the Spirit of God, I can be redeemed. Because Christ died for me. Christ died for you. Christ died for each one of us in here. And that's the hope and the love that we need to share with one another. Now, as we close, I'm not even going to do the last song. We're just going to close with prayer. But if there's somebody that needs to talk to somebody, feel free to do so. What I'm looking at is simply this. As we look at this in the way we close it out today, I know it's not been the greatest of sermons, so to speak, but it's real. Because this has not been something, I mean, my notes are all jumbled at this point. I haven't even really looked at them much other than to get a couple quotes. Because where we're at in this is simply this. I fully believe the Spirit will lead us where we need to go. I fully believe that we have seen that happen over the last few years. And we will continue to see that happen. And this 2020 vision is greater than just being able to see perfectly into the future. It's actually a moment of us looking ahead to see where God wants us in a year and a half or in two years or in 10 years. I want to see us grow spiritually, which is where we need to start. Spiritual growth doesn't happen just by calling somebody on the carpet and saying, hey, your sin's wrong and you need to forgive yourself and you need to get over yourself and you need to come and and come to the altar right now. How many of us in here today can honestly say that if somebody comes to you harshly and accuses you, that you're actually going to listen to them? I mean, in the moment, probably not. Maybe two, three days down the road when you think about what they said, it might trigger. But the reality is, is when you go to somebody and you find them in their sin, and you notice their sin and you recognize their sin and you go up to them and you say, hey, privately speaking, this is going on in your life and it needs to stop. And this is why I say that. And you take them to the scripture and you show them what God says about it and about the love and, and that he has for them. And you, you give them that little tidbit of information about what God says about the sin they are in. And you say, look, I'm not judging you. I love you. I just want you to know. I want you to understand where you're at right now. I want you to understand what, what I see in you. And then if they refuse to hear it, then you take somebody else that sees the same thing because there's always the potential. Because as we know, Christ died for our sin. He died for the sins of those who have yet to come to him just as much as he died for the sins of those who have come to him. And you started there one day as well. And so that plank that's in your eye, once it's removed, you can lovingly see what's taking place. But really, is it about calling somebody out on their sin or just showing them the love of Christ and allowing that love and that spirit to work in them to show them their sin? That's the reality of what life is about. That's the reality of what this life as Christians is about. It's not for me to call Sharon on the carpet and say, Sharon... I've recognized this sin in your life and you're going to hell if you don't face it. It's for me to sit down with Sharon and say, hey, let me tell you about the love of God. Let me tell you what he has for you. Let me tell you this story about a man who died on a cross because he loved you enough to die. Let me tell you a story about a man who cried out to God and said, if this is not your will, then let's fix it. Let's do something else. But if it is your will, then by all means, let it happen. And then he went to a cross and he died. And his blood was shed. And then he defeated death by rising from the dead. 
And that's the whole thing about resurrection and the promise we have in it. But I don't need to go there. I mean, really, the reality is simply this. Love dies for the sin. And love dies to sin because of our love for him. When we recognize and we die with him, when we are crucified with Christ, we live. But again, what, is, what does it say? I think Luke, uh, whatever, 11, no. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Don't throw your soul away on selfish desires and selfish worldly. I mean, that translates into wanting to see the worst happen in someone's life because you disagree with them. That translates into wanting to see the demise of someone just solely based on where they're at in their life and where you're at in yours. That translates into the fact that you may not agree with a political figure, but wanting them to die, probably not a good way to look at it. So as we close today, I'm just simply going to close in prayer. But if you have a decision to make, please don't leave here without making it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, we praise you, and we lift it up to you today. We know that you are in control, God, and I pray that you would help us to be forgiving, to be loving, to be hopeful in you, and to share that hope and that love and that desire within us with others. Lord, help us to lead them to you by leading by your spirit. Lord, that we would get out of the way of what you're trying to do and that our selfish desires would be nothing. God, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have to go out into the world, to go out beyond these doors and to share your love and your gospel truth with others. We just lift these things up to you now in the holy, precious, and wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.